Welcome back to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm Umbreen Khan. Earlier this week, around the world, the Jewish community celebrated the Festival of Purim. It involves fasting and wearing costumes and remembering the story of how a queen saved the ancient Jewish people. But first, a little history with American University religion professor Martin Oliver and Abigail Pogrebin, the author of My Jewish Year, 18 Holidays, One Wandering Jew. It's the 5th century BCE. You had a really bad king, a Persian king, who ruled the Jews in Babylon. Basically, he was oppressive. He didn't know that his wife was a Jew, and this is Queen Esther. And he had a, an advisor named Haman, or Haman. The king, Esther's husband, has allowed Haman to order the extermination of the Jews. So that's obviously pretty disturbing. We're essentially talking about the Holocaust of that time that was planned. Esther's uncle Mordecai comes to her and says, please intervene. She's afraid. She's like, I don't know, right? At that point, it was life-threatening to go before the king when you had not been summoned. If you speak to the king without being invited, you could die. He says, you've been put here perhaps for this very reason. Esther is fortified by this, but still afraid. She had to prepare to go to her husband, who might kill her. And she was basically saying to her people, fast with me, prepare with me, stand with me as I go forth to do this thing that only I can do because of my relationship with him. And she does it. She goes to the king and says, this edict can't go through. You can't wipe out my people. I think what's powerful about this holiday, you know, maybe we haven't been asked to save our people. Maybe we haven't been asked to save lives. But there have been moments, undoubtedly, I think for all of us, when when we are basically called to act, to be courageous, to take a, a role or a leadership position that we didn't necessarily welcome or seek. And the question is, do we rise to it? Do we rise to that moment or do we shy away from it? Do we run from it? She didn't. She definitely paused. She actually said, not me. I'm not your woman. I'm not the one to do this. There was no question that she's struggling. And that's part of what we fast for is to sort of back her up if we're talking um, in contemporary language. And the fact that she takes that leap, you know, when have we had to do the thing that felt uncomfortable and said, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to take that risk. These days, the holiday of Purim is celebrated with a host of rituals that emphasize the importance of women's voices and agency. For example, it's a tradition for women to read the Megillah, the biblical book of Esther. Ruth Friedman says that the fast of Esther also resonates in today's modern culture. Friedman holds an important title herself at Ohev Shalom, the National Synagogue in Washington, D.C. She is the Maharat, which means she's a spiritual leader and legal authority in the Jewish state. In fact, she was part of the first class of Orthodox women to be ordained and receive this title. She serves her community in a number of ways, overseeing the conversion program, operations of the community mikvah, and much more. She is also a proud member of the Washington Board of Rabbis and sits on the executive committee of the board of the International Rabbinic Fellowship. Friedman wrote about Esther and the Me Too movement in an opinion editorial back in 2018 for the Washington Post. And in that, she argued, there's another woman in the story who also deserves a second look. 
The story of Esther contains two women, Esther being one of them, the more well-known, and then Vashti, who only appears in the first chapter, the king's Ahasuerus's first wife. And traditionally, Esther is very appropriately seen, of course, as the hero of the story, but they're actually total opposites. Vashti is summoned by the king during a time of feasting to dance before him and display her beauty before him and his officers. And we can infer what that probably meant. What did that mean? Probably in a more sexual, perhaps nude way, though the text does not explicitly um, describe it in that way. And she refuses. And this refusal alerts one of the king's officers to be very fearful that the story that she refused her husband's demands would spread throughout the kingdom and all of a sudden women women are going to stop obeying their husbands. And so they issue a decree that Vashti must be banned and that women from now on have to be obedient to their husbands. So it's sort of has it's a narrative that in some ways has come full circle because Esther is seen as the hero, which she absolutely is, but she is the woman who is, the, is taken as a young virgin into the king's harem and then selected to be queen. That she has no choice; she is completely passive in that. And she is taken. And she has no agency over herself or her body, whereas Vashti is someone who stood up and said no and was subsequently banished. And so if in some ways that creates a dynamic where if, if we see Esther as the hero, then we have to see Vashti as the villain because they're opposites. And I, I had recently, along with many feminist scholarship, come to see, you know what, Vashti is a hero. She stood up and said no. And that doesn't mean we didn't see Esther as a hero. However, I think the events of the past year, we've seen so many women come forward and say, I was being abused for years. And I had to suffer through that every day and persevere in spite of that every single day. And that is really Esther's narrative. Esther has to be subject to all of these terrible things happening to her in the in the king's palace, and she doesn't have any agency over herself. She has no choice. And so what prompted this is thinking we're coming together to celebrate as a community. We've got this joyous holiday that we teach to kids. Esther went to the beauty pageant. Great. She did a wonderful job. She did a wonderful thing. And Vashti was this bad, you know, she refused the king. And then we come and we say, actually, Vashti was a hero. She didn't refuse But we also have a woman who was still being abused. So there's so many different complex narratives happening right before our eyes. And I spend time discussing this now because we as a country have had a lot of complex narratives swirling Mm -hmm. before our eyes. And I think that we're now realizing that it's just as powerful to say no as it is to be suffering. And there's so many complexities going on and that you can't reduce it to like one is the right approach and one is the wrong approach. And that we have to make room um, to really hear everyone's story. Is the fasting of Esther now becoming kind of a feminist call to remembrance and a act of solidarity? It certainly could be. Um, I hadn't seen it or thought of it like that yet, but I could see that that could certainly emerge as a possible theme, definitely. Yeah. The story of Vashti and Esther is complicated because it's, as you've described, one in which agency and also feeling a responsibility to the community emerges. What application, what does this mean for women today who find themselves in situations where they may feel like they are in environments where they can't say no or they're forced to go along? And what inspiration in both Esther and Vashti's stories can women look to or find inspiration in? It's something I've been thinking a lot about. 
Esther is such an important person because she spends the first half of her time in the palace being so passive and, and Mordechai comes to her and says, you have to do something. You have to do something. She says, everyone knows that you can't do anything. Everyone knows I can't approach the king. But she, she realizes more and more she has to. She is the only option to save the Jewish people and avert this decree. And so she has this moment where she says, Kasher avadati, avadati. I will go approach the king. And if I am lost, literally means lost. If I die, I, I die. I perish. And it's her moment of saying, I have no choice, but it's an empowering moment in saying, yes, I I have to do this. This is something that I absolutely have to do, and I will bear the consequences if I have to bear the consequences. And so that doesn't necessarily map out perfectly exactly onto what we're seeing today. But but I think what we, we do see in common is that women tragically have spoken up often at risk of their reputations, of their careers, etc. But they still have realized this is something that I have to do. It cannot continue to be silent anymore. I think Vashti's story, fascinatingly, is in many ways the same story. She also probably said to herself, I'm not doing this, and if I perish, I perish. And she was banished from the kingdom. We don't know exactly, of course, what banishment meant, if it involved death necessarily. Our tradition teaches that it does. But that also was her moment where she said, I I." can't do this anymore. Presumably, we presume it was not the first time she had been summoned for this purpose, but it certainly was the last. I'm curious, like, what inspires you to look back at these stories of women in the tradition and revisit them with a new and fresh perspective? And what did you learn from that? The reason that I return to these stories and and look at them in light of current events is both because I, I believe that that's what they were there for us to do, but also because you know every week I teach the kids in our school. We have an after, in our synagogue. We have an after school program on Thursdays, and I, I think about when we tell these stories and when we celebrate the holidays of these stories. What are these children? What are they picking up on? What are they not picking up on? What are we not being honest with them about? And what are they internalizing moving forward? And often we've taught children that. You know, Vashti, she refused the king, but then Esther came, she entered this beauty pageant and she won. And isn't that so wonderful? But then you look at the text more closely. And I was studying with a girl in preparation for her bat mitzvah, which was Purim themed. And we look at the story and the story is very clear that Esther was not entered into a beauty pageant. She was taken. The text tells us, Vatila Kachester, Esther was taken. She was seized by the local authorities to be brought to the king's palace. And you realize, well, if we're speaking to kids about this story and we're we're saying a woman who was taken against her will it was suddenly did it out of her own volition she volunteered that's very dangerous um for moving forward and what are they going to internalize and take with them about you know sex power dynamics all these types of things and so i i don't <laughs> i don't necessarily teach all of those details but i think it's something that we have to be very careful of is what what do we reduce and what do we we change in a story in order to make it more palatable and easier to teach children but you know there are very big dangers with that also and part of Purim involves dressing up, costumes, and, you know, often children will dress up as the heroes of the story, Mordechai and Esther. And especially if you're dressing up as Esther, little girls dressing up as Esther, what is that representing? Maharat Friedman reminds us that when we're talking about fast, there is one big one that has an indisputable significance in the Jewish community. 
So Yom Kippur is the holiest day of the Jewish calendar. Um, the Bible, the Torah, God, you know, very explicitly commands us um, to observe it. And the the language is used is ve'initem et nafshotechem that you should afflict your souls. And so, of course, we have to ask the question of what exactly does that mean? And so we believe we fast. Um, we abstain from all water and food for a 25-hour period from sunset the evening before until nighttime the next day. And there is also additional prohibitions of anointing oneself with lotions, bathing, um, etc., so one really is supposed to abstain from all physical pleasure. And to feel affliction. Yes. <laughs> Why? Why is affliction associated with the holiest day? When we think about that, we, we think about that as a, in a very negative way. I actually, we have also a somber day, um, a day of mourning, a fast day in the Jewish calendar called Tisha B'Av, the ninth of Av. Yom Kippur is not that. Yom Kippur is about recognizing that we are all standing before God on that day, on the day of judgment, and that we we are supposed to be atoning for all of our sins of the year on that day. And so on the day in which we are supposed to so seriously recognize our own vulnerability in this world and beg God to forgive us, it's just not appropriate to engage in any physical activity. So you're abstaining from physical activity, anointing, you mentioned lotions. Are there any other activities that you're supposed to refrain from? A sexual intimacy as well, and the wearing of, of comfortable shoes. And, and so they're seriously supposed to really mark the day. The day is supposed to look different and feel different than any other day of the year. And are there any particular reflections or things someone is supposed to do when they are in the state of fasting and experiencing abstention? from all these other activities? Well, it happens to include the longest prayer service of the year. So um, your average Jew um, would spend most of the day in synagogue. Uh, you know, of course, depending on the movements and one's own religious background, one would choose to spend different amounts of time. But for example, at our synagogue at Ohev Shalom, services begin at 8 a.m. and will continue until, depending what time of year, approximately 7, 7.30 p.m. Wow. With a couple hour break, but not more than that. But the, the complete prayer service, as is traditionally understood, does definitely consume the bulk of the day. And is there a communal aspect to it or can you observe it by yourself? It's a fascinating question because our rabbis teach us that part of our prayer service is that we all pass before God which is understood to be either like sheep or like soldiers, which are counted individually. But we have this fascinating tension where we do that. But we come to services together to pray. So we're all coming together to pray as a community, but to be judged individually, which is one of the reasons I, I enjoy synagogue on Yom Kippur very much is because you're having this very intense personal reflection on your past year and, and thinking about what you want for yourself moving forward, where you could have done better. But the reminder is that still the process doesn't occur in a vacuum. No person exists in a vacuum and that we're all really part of a community at the same time. I'm curious, is anyone exempted from or not supposed to fast during Yom Kippur? Because it's a biblical command, it is the most serious fast day of the year. Certainly someone who is sick in a way that fasting would compromise their health in a serious way would be um, exempted from fasting. But the rabbis really do encourage everyone who is able to fast to fast. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me.
Maharat Ruth Friedman of Ohev Shalom National Synagogue in Washington, D.C., is a member of the inaugural class of the Yeshiva Maharat, which is the first institution to ordain Orthodox women as spiritual leaders. You can find a link to her Washington Post opinion editorial and her other writings on our website at interfaithradio.org. That's all for this week's show. If you missed any part, you can stream it online at interfaithradio.org. While you're there, you can also learn about us, read the show notes, sign up for our newsletter, and explore the archives. You can find our podcast on Apple, Podcast, Stitcher, or really the podcaster of your choice. Just search Interfaith Voices. And while you're there, help us out. Leave a rating and a review. It helps others find us. This week's episode was produced by Kimberly Winston and Kevin McCarthy. A special thanks to our founder, Maureen Fiedler, for her vision. And this week's music is from Blue Dot Sessions and Audio Binger. Inspired is a production of Interfaith Voices. We rely on the generous support of our listeners to bring you this show. Wherever you are, friends, stay safe, stay well, and stay connected. I'll see you next week. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. <laughs>